Uh, just give me a check real quick. Hello, hello, one, two, three. Perfect. All right. Um, fuck it. Well, that's how it goes. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is approved like, to kill it. It's a new world. I know, man, and like that's the scary thing, because like if we respond this way to this, there's only gonna be more down the line. Oh, the same thing on the bottom or something. Not at all. Um, all right. So before we get started, and we are recording now, um, but I just ask. Uh, is there anything you don't want to talk about? I'll talk about everything. Oh, my God. All right. Um, well, then, if that's the case, um, if something does come up, though, just take a pause and, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, I'll cut it out. All right. Uh, give me one second. All right. We are back with Danny Frank's Walks of Life. I'm here uh, for a very special episode, actually. Uh, I got to say, sometimes in life... Uh, things happen that you didn't expect were going to happen. And I, uh, I'm very lucky to have this next guy on. Uh, and in addition to being the first guy that ever agreed to headline my first show, honestly, before I really understood what headliner meant, and I apologize about that, um, you know, this guy agreed to do it. And because of that, um, I've been producing shows ever since. And in addition to that, I think uh, our guest today is actually one of the most underrated comedians in Hollywood. And uh, also at the same time, probably one of the most underrated people in Hollywood, period, just as a person. I agree. Um, you know, like you can learn a lot from this guy, comics. Uh, if you get a chance, please subscribe to his podcast, Inappropriate Earl. Um, look through the archives, especially the Tommy Morris episode, because you will learn a ton. Um, but without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, you wanted the best, you got the best. Ladies and gentlemen, Earl Skakel. I think that reminds me of uh, when I saw Guns N' Roses and they mocked Kiss by going, you wanted the best? <laughs> well, they couldn't make it. So here we are, or something like that. It's, just like, oh, it's kind of a dicky thing to do, but uh, it's good to be here, man. You know, uh, I can probably tell comics what not to do versus what to do but uh i always enjoy uh, teaching uh people the uh, pitfalls of this business you know and i appreciate that and i gotta say i feel like in this new era that moving forward you know maybe we won't need studios maybe the model switches over to like 100 percent diy um and if that's the case i gotta say i admire your bravery and uh your honesty man well, um, I mean, being honest isn't really uh, helping me, but uh, it's just who I am. I'm not incapable of being phony or fake. I'm actually pretty good at it when I have to be. But, uh, you know, I think people really got into my honesty when I spoke out about Comedy Central and how they treated me on Roast Battle, including being on the Comedy Central podcast in the Viacom building, and I just went nuts. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I think uh, people misunderstand honesty in this business for bitterness. And uh, I'm really the furthest thing from bitter. I'm just honest about uh, how people treat me, whether it be, you know, Roast Battle or, you know, the Jellies who treated me amazingly. So I talked about how good they treated me. So uh, I think the business would be a lot better if everyone were just 
authentic authentic stood up for yourself which i do and i think uh you know that can create uh some people behind the scenes not wanting to work with you because they know that they can't pull anything on you without you making a stink about it so uh but it's just who i am i appreciate it man it's refreshing uh i think the term you always use on your podcast is uh it's refreshing to have in a sea of phonies some authentic people like yourself so i think you should keep going man oh yeah i mean it's part of the earl skakel brand it is i mean honest you know it's like uh at 51 and i'll be 52 in september i'm probably not going to change if anything i'm even more honest (laughs) which i love like you know i'm cutting out comics i don't like you know there was one particular comic who in the first month of the pandemic kept calling me out of the blue and he He's never called me out of the blue in 10 years of knowing him. So he either wanted money or some kind of a favor, and I just didn't even call him back. It's like, no, you're done. You're out. That sucks, uh, man. Well, I just, uh, you know, 10 years ago, I probably would have picked up the phone and, and bullshitted with him. Now I just don't have the... Well, I've certainly got the time, but I have uh, i don't have the energy it takes to deal with phony people anymore. You know, I just... Uh, I think that's one thing everyone will find out when you get older. You're a lot more uh, time conscious of uh, what you deal with. And, like, I don't want phony people in my life. And uh, so it's I may come off as unfriendly to some people now. It's like, where's the Earl from 10 years ago? But, uh, you know, it's the same Earl. It's just a different uh, computer running on my brain. It's a new era, right? <laughs> well it is man you know i don't uh i just i hate phony people now and there's so many in, in the world of stand-up that uh you know like i had people come up to me at the comedy store and be like hey great set i actually had this happen to me once they said great set i'm like dude i just pulled up i haven't even gone on yet <laughs> like what are you talking get away from me so uh and you know because I know a lot of famous comics, people are nice to me, so I could get their scripts or name in front of these famous comics. It's like I can't even help myself with these people. You think I'm going to say your name to Russell Peters or Joe Rogan? <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to get on Joe's podcast too. I'm not putting your name in a zone. I did that once, and it didn't work out. It actually hurt me. Yeah, because uh, I had. Uh, you know, Joe had asked me to be on the podcast, and I'm like, "Well, he'll." I really- think you'd be an awesome addition, you'd be just because you're so, like we said, real and authentic. Like I think that energy he'd appreciate too. I think he does because he loves me. You know, he hugs me every time he sees me. But I thought, well, I don't want to be like everyone else and jump at Push the. It, yeah. I, you know, even though he asked me, so he gave me his number, said, "Text me, we'll organize it," uh, and then he left. And I said, "Well, I'm not going to call or text him for myself." I've got this dude who's got this wild story. Uh, I, I don't want to say who he is just because I don't want to throw him under the bus because he's a nice guy deep down. But he's got this yeah. wild uh, life he's led. Like, a, you know, he's a soldier of fortune. I'll just leave it at that. And I thought, well, that's <laughs> perfect for Joe. Like, he, Joe loves those, you know, kind of weird stories. Right. Uh, so I texted Joe, hey, I got an idea for your show. Like, my friend is this wild guy. He's traveled the world. He's done this. He's done that. Secret missions. And then I think my friend started, not, not bugging him, but, like, 
he's a little over anxious uh and then so that reflected bad on me where i should have just said hey hey joey you mentioned in the kitchen you know it's time i come on the podcast let's let's arrange it so you know i i might have delayed my chance of getting on the podcast through a overzealous friend well i mean at least it's the intent that counts and i'm sure that as time goes on man you're gonna pop into his mind and you'll be there sooner rather than later i'm sure yeah because i think it'd be uh like in terms of a guest i've got a very interesting uh background that i think he would like you know got the 20 years of stand-up but he can interview a thousand comics uh you know i know he's a fan of the show roast battle so he could talk about that um and then the cartoon you know being the only white guy on an all-black cartoon the jellies the jellies by tyler the creator that's right everybody go check it out keep that show alive you can stream it for free on uh, i think adultswim.com and uh you know, so we could talk about that, and then we could. Uh, You're on. Uh, I'm dying up here on Showtime. Well, I was barely in that. Like, I think I was in like 11 of the 20 episodes. Maybe had speaking lines in five of the 11 episodes I was in, and they were very short lines. Uh, but we could talk about. Well, Still I mean, counts, man. Oh yeah, I mean, it's being in 11 episodes of a show is better than known, known, none. Uh, but I think he would like the the Kennedy connection. You know, my aunt is Ethel Kennedy. Yeah. So, uh, and you know, my cousin also uh, on the Skakel side. I have a cousin who had some legal problems, and so I think I had a lot of check marks in terms of well, we could talk here, we could talk that. You know, most people you, oh, we can only talk about comedy, but you know, uh, so we'll see. Well, I mean, I think that's kind of why I was interested in having you on too, because uh, in addition to being a comic. And a paid regular at the comedy store. Um, you, and not to fanboy out too much, but like I, like I said, I've been a fan for a while. I've heard a lot of the inappropriate earls, if not all. Thank you. And um, I got to say, dude, like you've led life the most authentically I think you could throughout it. And you've had a more interesting experience than uh, most people. I mean, um, do you mind if we get into it? Sure. Dude, I, like I told you before we started, when I'm a guest on someone else's podcast, I'll uh, I, I follow their lead. I'll talk about anything, you know. All right, man. Well, uh, I mean, we've introduced you. Your name is Earl Skakel, but uh, where'd you grow up, man? For people that don't know. Well, this is another thing of being an interesting guest, or, or I don't want to act too much like I'm like plugging myself, but like, no, nah, dude. I mean, you're here, and I I love that you even let me come here. We're on the famous inappropriate Earl couch. We are, it's... and uh, I gotta say, dude, it's it's surreal to see after all this time and just look around and think that, like I'm here. I mean, like, I remember listening to your podcast in a car somewhere in the middle of the Inland Empire. And this couch yeah. has had uh, Roddy Piper on it, uh, Tony Katane, Tommy Morris, uh, Brody Stevens. Uh, I mean, every yes. uh, every episode's been on this couch, and uh, I think I've done like ten solo episodes. Uh, but for the most part, there's I'm in the guest uh, spot uh, of the couch, which I rarely am. Uh, I appreciate so. it, man. Oh, Honestly. dude, that's I always like doing uh, other people's podcasts because uh, the pressure's off, you know. Like it's tough being your host or being a host of. Oh you know, yeah, you don't want to come off stupid. You want yeah. to ask like good questions. You want to be informative. You know, entertaining. It's a lot of factors for yeah. sure. So with the guests, you can just you know answer the questions. So answering your question, 
I am probably the only comic to grow up in Bel Air, California, which is the Bel Air from like Fresh Prince of Bel Air, and uh, you know, and I think people always misunderstand like when I tell people I grew up in Bel Air, they think I'm just like some super rich guy. But, uh, you know, Bel Air in the 60s was really not uh, the Bel Air it is today with, like, multi-billionaires like and, and pro athletes and rappers. And, uh, you know, it was just an uh, undeveloped hillside. And, uh, and I think my dad built the house in 1961. I don't know why he picked that part of town, but he built it. And uh, and I think sixty four. I might be off on the year because I know podcast fans love to fact check. <laughs> uh, but there was the famous Bel Air fire, which literally burnt down every home in Bel Air but ours. It's crazy. Uh, so and then Bel Air in the seventies and eighties and nineties and now it became what it is. Uh, but we were like being first up on a tech stock. It was just. You know, all these rich people grew up around us when I was growing up, like Stallone and uh, Gloria Vanderbilt. That's crazy. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Now, I mean, for older people, they'll know who that is. But for younger people, they're like, who's that? He's like the LeBron of his era. And, well, for uh, younger people, I'm pretty, um, correct me if I'm mistaken, but I think you've mentioned you used to live by O.J., OJ uh, was in Bel Air because uh, uh, when I tell people I live or uh, OJ was my neighbor, they oh you lived in Brentwood and no he he moved. Uh, I don't know when he moved, probably the eighties. Uh, and then who else was my neighbor? Wilt Chamberlain uh, lived across the canyon. Uh, James Kahn, the famous actor. Um, Howard Keck, who is not famous but maybe one of the richest men to ever walk the planet. If you ever go by USC, you'll see the Keck School of Medicine, and I can assure you, you do not get a medical building named after you at USC unless you donated what most people probably make in a thousand lifetimes. Wow. So, uh, you know, it was a very interesting... Oh, Harry Nielsen was probably the coolest oh, neighbor. Wow. He was essentially the fifth Beatle. He wrote a lot of songs with John Lennon, and I was in his home many times as a child. His home was really the first like home I remember being in of like wow this guy's got money like he had uh I mean an uncalculable amount of platinum records because uh, uh, he wrote I think he ghost wrote for a lot of uh musicians so he had you know obviously he gets a platinum record for writing this song or, right. and he had a lot of hits himself and then he had like a basketball court in his house and uh it was just like the first house I was like wow this is crazy and Elvis was our neighbor for a very Whoa. small amount of time. He lived in the house below us. Uh, I don't remember ever seeing him, but I, he was there. And then uh, Jane Mansfield, I think, lived uh, for a little while uh, down the road from us. So it was just like a crazy... Like everybody that was destined for greatness yeah. at one point I mean, Bel Air lived Hotel. in your block. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it was just... And we lived right by the Bel Air Hotel, which is like maybe the most exclusive hotel in the world. Uh and then, you know, my dad had a membership at Bel Air Country Club, which now I think is like three or $400,000 plus wow. the dues. I don't know what the dues are. I'll, I'll guess they're probably 2000 a month. You would hope at that price that there would be no dues, but I guess. Oh, no. There's, right, dude, there's that's so not even what you, like, if you take your family to the Sunday night dinner there and you'll probably drop $1,500 because it's, I, who knows what the food costs there. But uh, it goes back to 
you know, we weren't really rich, but my dad bought a membership there in like 1961 or whatever, when it was probably, I don't know, $1,200 to join and, and probably, I'll guess a hundred dollars a month. That's crazy, man. And then it grew to 400,000 yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah. You know, I'm guessing, but it, it's a lot of money. And, uh, so I grew up actually playing golf was the first sport that I really like gravitated to, uh, cause it was, you know, I'll never forget the first time my dad took me to the country club. He's like, if you ever need anything like golf balls or whatever, my account is 314. And I was like, oh, great. And so, you know, I, I was horrible at golf when I first started. I mean, I would lose probably an 18 holes of a. And Bel Air's like, they had the 76 US amateur there. So it's like, it's a nice course. It's hard. Uh, I mean, it's not hard for Tiger Woods, but like for someone like me or like a. Even, even like a very good golfer, it's a hard course. Uh, you know, I would lose probably five to ten balls for, per 18 holes when I started. So, But I didn't really care because I was, oh, I'll just go to the pro shop and uh, get a dozen more balls, 314, James Skakel. Because he was like a legend at this place. He was literally like the Rod, Rodney Dangerfield. I almost said Rodney King. Uh, Rodney <laughs> different Dang- experiences yeah, for sure. Much different. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Rodney Dangerfield character in Caddyshack, you know, he he would show up with his shirt inside out. He he was a diabetic, so he uh, <laughs> he regulated his insulin by having uh, candy all the time. So he would like have a chocolate bar in the car that was there for like six months, and he would just if he was feeling low, he would just open it up, he'd eat whatever he ate of it, and then he would wipe his hands on his shirt. So he would show up to Bel Air Country Club in a white golf shirt that looked like he'd wiped his ass with it. And uh, he was so, not unkempt, because he was a very good-looking guy, but, you know, he's a little older, so, uh, you know, he was like an older, good-looking guy. He showed up to the country club one day, standing out by his car, and James Garner, the actor, walks, or drives up, mm-hmm. looks at my dad, thinking he's a caddy, and <laughs> says, uh, hey, uh boy go put my uh, bags on the first tee so my dad had a really good sense of humor and he said yes sir mr garner and uh, he takes the bags to the first tee and he's standing there and uh, james garner comes down and says, yeah i'm supposed to meet jim skakel to play golf and he's like you're looking at him like, <laughs> so it was just like uh i mean I that hope was he my felt dad. like an ass man uh he probably didn't i mean james garner back then uh, this is probably in the 70s uh, you know, was a probably the number one TV star, like, uh, which is crazy because most people who are younger, like, you know, 20 year olds, are like, who the hell's James Garner? So, uh, but he was like on Rockford Files and just like Rockford Files was, uh, I'm trying to think of a show that's on today that would be like, I mean, I can't even think of a, uh, an actor who's on TV, uh, boy, it feels I mean, weird. I mean, we're in an era where it's like, so many shows so many shows but also like traditional tv's dying you know like i saw that there's they're coming out with a new show um that's essentially it's that computer game the sims right but it's a live reality contest and that's the show just them live streaming like twitch style on tv yeah i mean uh, it's crazy to think like in the future do we need actors Probably not. I mean, back when James Garner was a star, there was three networks. Uh, I think Rockford Files, I think, was on NBC. So if you had a TV show on the air, you were like a huge star because there weren't that many TV right. shows. Uh, 
you know, now it's like, uh, you know, Chandler got me into watching the show Animal Kingdom. And uh, who's Chandler for Chandler is my lovely other half. Uh, and she's uh, a very talented uh, producer, writer, improver. Uh, she's just got nominated for an Emmy. Uh, oh, congratulations, uh, man. For the uh, ABC That's show. That's cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, she's really talented. Uh, but she turned me on to this show called Animal Kingdom, which uh-huh. is about... Uh, it's a, um, it's about bank robbing and it's a crew and they follow the crew and then they're all four brothers and Ellen Barkin is like the leader, which, which is cool to have like a female. This is like a drama, not like an animal show? Yeah, no, that's what I thought. Okay. I would, for <laughs> yeah. like a year and a half, I would drive by uh, the, I guess it's the T, TNT billboard on Sunset when you make that curve uh, going to the comedy store. And I would see this show called Animal Kingdom, and I never watch it because I don't want to watch a show about like animals, right? And then near uh, cats or who knows? Yeah, I, or like shows about you know I don't know dolphins in the jungle or something. Right. <laughs> uh, and then uh, Chandler's like, you, you'd love this show, Animal Kingdom, and uh, so I, I've been hooked on it ever since. But there were so many shows on TV, I, I never even imagined. Like I've never watched a TNT show. So, uh, and now it's like, you know, with Netflix and Hulu and Amazon, uh, you, you know, and then I have direct TV and I have like the full channel thing. And do you notice they have a Scientology channel on direct TV now, by the way? Yeah, I see with, that. With uh, very normal programming, almost uh, hauntingly normal. Yeah. You I mean, don't I- even realize it's Scientology. Well, I have a friend of mine, Michael Joyner, who's mm-hmm. a, a Christian comic, and which is funny because he was pretty dirty before. But he, I think the you know he got in as he got older, just that not being his thing. He does a lot of Christian movies, that like you know where they're Crazy. normal movies, uh, you know like uh, I don't know what a normal movie would be, but like you know it's about families and stuff and their right. struggles and but they're done I guess with a Christian perspective. Uh, or yeah, so uh, it's so you have even like sub channels like that and the Scientology channel and. Uh, you know, BET, I guess, is like for African American like storylines and yeah, it is kind of the good thing about having so many channels. I guess is that there's a market for everything. But you miss a lot right. of shows. Like That's I, true. I, I never would have seen Animal Kingdom unless Chandler said, "Hey, check out this show." Or like one of my favorite shows on Amazon Prime is uh, Bosch, which I never would have. Uh, I forgot who got me into Bosch, uh, but I love the actor in it, Titus Welliver, because uh, he's he's like that typical character actor that you you see his face and uh, like he's you just that's that guy I saw in that movie. I don't know his name, but that's the guy. And uh, and I saw him in Sons of Anarchy, so I think I looked him up. I go, oh, what's this show, Bosch? Which is a, about a detective based around on a series of books, and uh, I think each season is a different book. Uh, so, but I never would have, there's just too much out there. There's too much content. And with that in mind, everybody, please, please, please go watch the jellies starring Barry. Uh, I'm sorry. Barry Sobel. Yeah. Sorry. Barry Sobel. No, uh, yeah. Especially if Cass it was a cartoon. Be younger. Uh, but yeah, no, sorry. But even Barry cartoons Jelly. are like, uh, you know, I have to like really direct people when I say I'm on a cartoon you know, oh, what's the name of it? Oh, the jellies. What channel is it on? Adult Swim. And a lot of people don't get Adult Swim. So Which I've, is crazy because I remember growing up, like Adult Swim had the best programming. 
and honestly still kind of does well they go it's for just, it. uh exactly and they're not they're not afraid to take on weird shows like one of my favorite shows from adult swim back in the day was uh aqua teen hunger force yeah no real no real point to any of that show but i watched it for years yeah i mean but then i uh, <laughs> have to even say well you can, if you don't have adult swim you can go on adultswim.com and just stream it and watch it for free uh, which was one of the problems I think with I'm dying up here is uh, that was the number one complaint my friends would give me is uh, it was two complaints about that show my friends had like, one we can't find it I'm like what do you mean it's on Showtime oh we don't have Showtime I said well get it like it's like just subscribe to it uh, and then uh, or you can just go on I think I don't know if it's the website name I'll assume it's Showtime.com but and you can stream it. Uh, it's probably on Amazon Prime. It I'm is. Gonna, uh, if you I think. It, maybe. Or, I think at one point it was on Hulu, and then they went to Amazon Prime. Uh, and then I think the other complaint was, "Well, it's not that funny." And it's like, "Well, it, you know, you, you're stand up. Uh, stand up's not a funny business." <laughs> uh, as much as I wish it was a lot of uh, hilarity all the time, it's definitely not. I mean, um, in my yeah. perspective, it's been interesting. Um, my perspective has definitely been changing over the past two years, um, transitioning from fan to comedian, and it's uh, it's a lot more than I ever would have thought, um, both in good and bad ways, I guess. But all the same, I think once you're in it, if you want to do it, like it's no question. Like I may never make money from this, I may never be in a TV show, never be in a movie, but I can't ever not do this now that I know this is a life, you know, and this is happening. Yeah, I mean, right. it took me 13 years, though, to make money. Like, for 13 years, I had nothing. I mean, I was in bench warmers in, I think, 2006, and literally a one-line uh, throw-up scene that Nick Swartzen was nice enough. I mean, he always liked me, so he's like, dude, i got to get you a TV credit. Let me just write this little scene. I, I can't guarantee you it'll stay in the movie. Because, you, know, you know, until I started working on TV shows, and I, I've, I've not been in another movie since bench warmers, but... Like, uh, when I see, like, Chandler working on movies, and, like, she worked on Night School and uh, a lot That's of, cool. like, a lot of other things. Uh, you know, you have no idea how many scenes get cut. And, right. Uh, you know, like, the movie Cobra, you know, I would slip in this movie at some point. <laughs> uh, you know, Cobra, the movie, I think, is only, like, it's a very short film. It's only, like, an hour and just a little over an hour. and But the original cut was like two and a half hours and and like because the script for cobra was originally the script for beverly hills cop no way i didn't know that so stallone reworked it and and you know so i'm sure he added like a lot more scenes and dialogue and uh so you in the scene in bench warmers i'm in like it's it's an unnecessary scene but you could tell that you know, if you watch Bench Warmers again, you'll be like, oh, this scene doesn't really need to be in it, but it's a funny scene. Uh, so that that was Swartz and just throwing me, uh, you know, just a bone of like, you know, I like you, you're nice. And I was pretty green, even though I was six years into comedy at that point. Uh, but, uh, you know, up in... If you, oh shit! Uh, no, sorry. No, let me hand. Uh, yeah, sorry about that. That's uh, my bad. The TV. Uh, I was watching Real Housewives before uh, Danny came over. We're just going to do this. <laughs> it's all good, man. It's my bad. Um, but, you know, if you take that out, 
of my resume, I mean, literally from 2000 to 2013, I had one thing on IMDb, Benchwarmers. That's it. And my name. Yeah, but uh, throughout that whole time, you're still grinding it out doing comedy. Oh, yeah. Oh, I was, right? you know, I, I would say my first, uh, like, probably five years, I was going up on average three times a night. Uh, not a week, a night. I mean, That's... I was a maniac. Um, so, uh, you know, I never... I mean, if you get into comedy for the money or fame, you'll quit uh, it's two months in. It's not about that at all. Yeah, and you realize immediately, I think, when you're in it, that there's like, it's a huge gamble. You're probably not going to make it, to be honest. Or it seems that way. Yeah, but I mean. that's not what it's really about. It's about like, it's kind of like that saying, right? Like, uh, or from what I can glean, it's about the journey, not the destination. Well, it depends what you want uh, yeah. or what your intentions are. If you're in it to be famous or to have money, you'll quit after three months. Cause there's, especially in L.A., there's no money in L.A. comedy unless you're at the clubs. And you're not going to be at the clubs unless you're on TV. And no one three months into comedy is on TV. Uh, so, uh, you know, it depends what your uh, expectations are and, and that you know, will guide you in terms of uh, how long you'll stick with it. Uh, you know, you see a lot of actors and uh, models and, and entertainers from other walks of the, uh, Hollywood and the sports field. They get into comedy as almost like a stopgap measure of, well, I'll just do this until my career kicks back in and, and whatnot. And, you know, like Jeremy Piven, he's, <laughs> he's doing comedy because he has to, not because he wants to. So he won't last long. Uh, you know, or someone like Michael Rappaport, you know, who's obvious, he's a great actor. Oh, yeah. Like, I think he actually likes doing stand-up. Uh, and so I think he'll last, he'll do stand-up. And obviously, he's not doing it for the money because he already has it. Uh, but that's when you make the most money is when you don't really care about what you make. You'll make more of it, which is like almost goes against the laws of, like, you know, how it should work. Uh so, you know, but for those first 13 years, like I had nothing until Roast Battle came along. And then within those two years, uh, at one point I was on four TV shows on four different networks. So, you know, just, but, you know, there's comics who have been doing it for two years who could say that, you know. It's, it really is like, it seems like a roll of the dice with some people, right? Like, and there's no fair, it seems um oh it's a very unfair business right and like you just but gotta... what's fair like what right you know it, it's it, it's it's like everyone has different versions of making it you know what's making it is it uh, you, you know jim carrey making 20 million dollars a film is it me uh, you know i know open mic comics and younger comics look up to me because oh he's paid regular at the store he's on roast battle and he's the, real yeah the jellies or whatever but it, you know uh, and then the, to other people, there's, you know, obviously Joe Rogan, he's a hundred million dollars Spotify deal. He sells out anywhere he goes. Like to me, Joe Rogan's made it, but to some comic, you know, I've made it. And, and so it's, just yeah, like, I gotta admit, man, like from my perspective, um, kind of going back and again, I'm not trying to kiss your ass too much, but I mean, it's pointless to yeah. do it. I can't help myself, let alone you. No, I'm not even trying to, oh, get I know. Any, but, um, like I mean this sincerely, like I think what I kind of admire about you is that you do what you want to do. You have your own authentic voice. Uh, you have your topics that, um, a lot of people 
aren't necessarily going to get. Absolutely. But if you are part of the chosen few, I guess, that connect with it, it's amazing. Well, and it's, yeah. you have a nice style that, you know, sometimes it's very slapsticky uh, and kind of silly and absurd. Um, but also at the same time, like, I really enjoy your jokes and your delivery. And like, it's just so you undeniably, you know, and I, I think they're, that's something that, uh, other comics can really learn from, I think is just watching how you continue, like I said, to be an authentic version of yourself. Well, I think a lot of comics fake it. Like, uh, you know, like I know, like, I, I don't know who a popular music person is like, a, I don't know, an Ariana Grande, uh, or um, you know Lady Gaga I, I do like Lady Gaga but like I don't know anything about Ariana Grande so jokes about her or her music they'd be fake if I was doing them instead I'll do a joke about Rat or Kiss because I listen to those bands and so or Jared from Subway yeah I mean, well everyone knows who that guy is that guy would have fit in great in comedy in LA but uh, you know I think the best material i've ever done has just been jokes about rat or the 80s miami vice or whatever because they're true and although i seem to do well with younger fans uh like really young fans uh, like probably from 18 to like 30 is probably my fan base which you think at 51 i would only really uh have older fans you know 35 and up but uh i think uh like like the last show I had at the comedy store, it's like I think it was the night before uh, quarantine shut down. There was a bunch of hockey players from the Ontario Reign. Awesome. Which is yeah, I'm a huge hockey guy, so I was like, oh my god, that's Boko Imama in the crowd. Uh, and for those who don't know, uh, Ontario Reign, that is in Ontario, California, not Canada. Yeah, and, and it is kind of the uh, farm team for the LA Kings, right? Yeah, it's their number one. I guess if you're a baseball fan, it would be considered their Triple A farm team uh, in a league called the AHL, which is the the, the league below the NHL. Um, and there was, uh, I think there was like four or five of them in the crowd. And I'm such a hockey fan, I knew who everyone was. And <laughs> uh, you know, and, but these are kids, man. They're like twenty. Literally, I think Boko Imama's like twenty two years old. Matt Lupp, twenty. I think uh, Sean Dursey was was in uh, high school like two years ago uh, and there was a so there's that group and to my right was a group of sorority esque type girls from like Newport Beach so early 20s awesome. and you know it was a packed original room and I'm killing with these two groups uh, and then I actually was a great wingman for the rain players I'm like hey why don't you guys hang out with these girls and they all shuffled off to saddle ranch down the road but like you would think like joking about rat boko imama who i think is 22 or 23 these girls from wherever they were from uh you, you know they weren't even born in the 90s let alone when rats you know height of their career was in the 80s but you'd be surprised though man i remember working at z gallery years ago after high school so it must have been like 2005 ish maybe or Sometime around there, and uh, I remember having a coworker that was so into rat, and I don't really know why, because she was not of age when it was when they were at their peak back then. Well, you now know? they're but at their peak with again, the Geico commercial. Yeah, man, and it's awesome to see. Like, it's kind of funny. It's uh, kind of cool, actually. Uh, well, to me anyway, because like, I mean, just think of all the time you interviewed Stephen Piercy. What, like one twice. or two, two times? Yeah. 
He's great. He's been on this couch and uh but I think lead that, singer of rap, by the way. Yeah, lead singer of rap. He's pumped out like a million solo albums. Uh uh but I think the younger kids they they don't know who Rat is. They they might be able to name me round and round as a song or when I talk about um you know, some of the actors like I talk about the movie Cobra. I have like a five minute joke on Cobra <laughs> where long story short, because I hate people who do jokes on podcasts because it, it's never really it's like worse than zoom comedy uh that's pretty bad yeah it's brutal uh <laughs> you know i do no offense no no it's all good like uh, i mean i did a couple uh my own comedy shows on instagram i think the first month of this pandemic and they were my shows and they were horrible uh but when i i had this five minute joke on cobra how i only pick up chicks with lines from cobra and i just you know i do it i'll pick a girl out in the crowd and i'll say just imagine we're at a nightclub and you know you come up to me and just say you want to fuck me or something and uh you know she'll say it the whole crowd's into it usually and then i'll say a line from uh cobra you know which came out in 1986 so you got to figure most of the crowd hasn't been bored till the early 90s because the comedy stores are younger to younger audience so but the crowd laughs uh, usually and uh you think well they're not gonna laugh they weren't even born when this movie was out they probably half the room does not know who sylvester stallone is which is crazy to me that he's probably the most well-known actor of my time you know from the time i was born to now like his movies have literally made just rambo and rocky franchises have made over a billion dollars that's just so well, that's not two movies. That's Jesus Christ, like six Rocky movies. I think four Rambo movies. So ten of his movies, on average, have made over two hundred and fifty million dollars, and probably more than that. Uh, and and back then, you know, like when Rocky came out, that's when movies were five bucks. Oh uh, man, or yes, three so. bucks. So uh, I imagine everybody was there, right? Yeah. So if if Rocky came out today. Uh, and and the same amount of people came to see it. Like now, I think me and Chandler went to uh, forget the last movie we saw. Might have been uh, maybe the last Star Wars, and we went to the Grove, and which is a suburb of L.A. It's, it's like east of West Hollywood, I guess. And uh, it was like thirty four dollars for two tickets. Yeah, it's gotten kind of ridiculous to the point where, like, it doesn't surprise me that they're almost going under completely. Because uh, not to mention the price of uh, concessions and stuff like that. Meanwhile, like Quentin Tarantino opened up, um, I forget what it's called, uh, the New Beverly Theater, and in L.A. too. And tickets to get in there are like less than ten bucks. I want to say. Uh, all the sodas are in glass bottles and they're like two bucks, three bucks for a hot dog, yeah, four I bucks mean, for four sliders. Like, why can't we do that? That theater's surviving, right? So it's certainly I, possible. Well, we went to, uh, what was another movie we saw? I think it was like maybe uh, the Elton John movie, Rocket Man. Oh, right, yeah. And uh, it, it was crazy. It was at the Avco Theater in Westwood. I know like your out-of-town fans are like, what? What's that? What the hell's the Abco Theater? It's it's like it was a huge theater in the eighties. Like it's where I saw Predator for the first time. It's where <laughs> I saw Showgirls, uh, Star Wars, Risky Business. I mean, classics. This was the theater to take a date 
or just to go with your friends. Like I, I think I saw Predator. I certainly didn't take a day to that movie. Uh, <laughs> I would hope like not. Four of my friends, <laughs> and it was just you stood in line. It was it was like amazing. It was like just the best experience. And I hadn't been in there probably since I saw Showgirls, uh, which is like '95, and uh, so it'd been it's crazy 25 years uh, since i've been in the afco theater so we went to go see rocket man there and there's like couches in there like we we sat uh, recliners uh, not couches and it was like i you could watch a movie and basically go to sleep Uh, it was the most insane experience and uh so i you know that's kind of worth it actually well, I mean, the tickets were I guess like... it's a trade-off, right? Yeah, I mean, but they were premium. You know, when I went to buy the two tickets, it's like, well, what level do you want? I'm like, what are you talking about? I've been in this theater a million times. There's, there's no level. It's just one. It's like, well, we have the premium seats in front, which the seats recline, and, and in the middle, you they recline 40% less. I'm like, I want the premium. And it was like, you know, 22 bucks plus the drinks and stuff. And like, you're looking like... If you take a date to a movie these days, it's like, you know, seventy bucks maybe. At least, yeah. Parking's now triple what it used to be, so it's so uh, I can definitely see where the Netflix and chill thing came about. Netflix yeah. is <laughs> ten bucks a month, and you could order a pizza or whatever, and like, so uh, I mean, it's just you don't even have to put pants on. No, I mean, unless uh, the girls, you know, depends on the girl, I guess. But, like, it's such a different uh, entertainment uh, experience now for, like, people your age versus what it was for my age. I mean, uh, you know, we and Chandler walked around Westwood the other night. We were out to dinner somewhere. I said, can we just drive in Westwood? I I just want to see what it looks like. Very similar. I, I probably haven't been in Westwood in 20 years. I think I... I, I, the last time I was in Westwood, there used to be a comedy show at the Westwood Brewing Company, uh, which is now a crab shack place. <laughs> but uh, And even back then, it, 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 there was a gang shooting, I think, in 88 in Westwood. And so people stopped going there because uh, a student got killed. Mm. And it was so sad. Like I, We were walking Lois and my dog and uh, like three of the probably seven theaters that were like my go-to theaters were gone and it was just like wow i remember seeing big wednesday which was a surf movie i'm obsessed with even though i don't (laughs) surf uh at the national the man national and it's now a vacant lot i and then i walked by i said well i remember seeing uh what was it uh, what was that warren Beatty movie where he goes to heaven he was a football player of a like I'm forgetting the name of it, but uh, it was I, it was like a big, big movie because Warren Beatty in the '70s was like Warren a, Beatty, and he goes to heaven. It was like not something heaven. Uh, was, he was a football player who dies and goes to heaven, and uh, I said, "Well, that was at the Man Westwood." Let me. I just want to walk by because see if I can. You know, I love going places to places in my past. Just oh, I get, dude, same here. I get like a, a nostalgic feeling when we walk by it. It's a Whole Foods now. Like, it's crazy. Uh, I mean, it's definitely not as cool at all. <laughs> no, I mean, Westwood, like, the only two theaters that have really uh, lasted are the the Man Bruin, which is right, well, it's not even there anymore, Hamburger Hamlet. It was like, that was the ultimate date thing to, 
take a girl to Hamburger Hamlet, and then you go to the movie theater, uh, and where Benchwarmers was, the Fox, which is a big, it's right across from the Bruins, so it was like they were competing movie theaters, so like you would, it was great selection of movies, and this is when there was no cineplexes, so it was like, You'd go to a movie theater. There was one movie there. Yeah. Uh, and then there was an arcade uh, next door. I was like, Westwood like was like the place. Uh, but then, and it goes to technology today. Like then other areas started, you know, like the Beverly Center was built. So they had movie theaters there. You had the West Side Pavilion built. You had movie theaters there. You had uh, obviously what kind of became the new Westwood was uh, the Third Street Promenade. Well, going back to that, I mean, um, so you say growing up, you had all these memories in that area uh, and you grew up in a weird block where like apparently everybody that was destined for greatness lived. And I think you had mentioned before on your podcast that your dad was like on Time Magazine's cover for like harpooning a whale or something. A huge whale. They did an article, I think, in 1964 about uh, are there any great american men left and that was uh the you know the idea of the article so someone told them about my dad how he's like this wild like master of he's like jacques cousteau meets macgyver you know he was like a scratch golfer but he never no one ever taught him how to play golf he was self-taught he was like a very successful business guy uh because his dad used to, in the Depression era, used to drive by oil refineries and he would ask them for their waste. And all these oil refineries thought he was fucking crazy. So they're like, yeah, you can have it. You know, it'd be like going to the comedy mm-hmm. store now and going, hey, can we have your paper shredding clippings? Uh, yeah, sure. And, <laughs> and then my dad's dad turned them into graphite. That's crazy. Uh, and so he founded the, not an oil company, but like a graphite company or whatever. Uh, you know, I don't know. They were into oil, but they were like they, like any golf clubs that are made from graphite came from my dad's dad's copyright. So it's like, crazy stuff like that. So uh, with all that in mind, I mean, did you ever know that you wanted to be a comedian? I mean, did you always have in your mind that you wanted to do something great or uh, I mean, well, what I've, led to all this? I was always funny. Uh, but just to finish up the thing on my dad, like yeah, so. I'm sorry. Oh no, it's all good. They uh, so they said, hey, will you go to I, I, not the Azores, but it was like the Netherlands or somewhere, and will you uh, hunt and kill a whale, and we'll write an article about it. And my dad was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, and so he they went to, and I really wish I, I remembered where it was. Um, but if you look up James Skakel, uh, Life Magazine, you know it it pops up. And he literally harpooned a whale with just a, a harpoon. And uh, there's a great picture uh, of my dad on the whale surfing on this gigantic so whale. Like not, wasn't a baby whale. It wasn't like a, a smaller, it was a, I don't know what the biggest whales are called. I, I want to say great white, but I know it's sharks. But like uh, an orca, I guess. Uh, and this whale was so big to give you the, the scope of how big the, or the scale of how big this whale was uh in our home in bel air we had not an olympic sized pool but it was a fairly big pool i mean it was like we had an olympic swimmer uh steve lundquist mm-hmm. i think he trained in our pool it's insane uh, <laughs> for the 1984 olympics not it wasn't his 
I think he came over one day. He's like, well, it's a great pool. Can I swim in it? And so he did it a few times. So that gives you, when an Olympic swimmer likes your pool, it's a big pool. And uh, the whale's jaw bones ran the length of the pool. We had them as seats. So any guests of my family, dad's friends, my friends, uh, whoever, they would sit on the whale's jaw bones. Because it was like the perfect seat. It had a dip in the middle and... Uh, but you know, that's probably, this pool was probably 25, 30 feet long. Uh, and they, it probably ran over the length of the pool. So, uh, you know, it just goes to show you how big the whale was. That's an impressive feat that he was able to take it out. I mean, I still to this day don't know how he just, I I guess he must've kept stabbing it and stabbing it, but how a, a whale that size probably didn't even feel it. Right. He didn't shoot it. It wasn't like, you know, in Jaws where they kill the shark, they're shooting the, um so uh that's kind of the weird upbringing i had of so with all that i mean did you you said you were always funny but comedy was never on the radar really or not really i mean uh when i was a teenager in the early 20s i ran with a real uh wild group of dudes Uh, i mean these guys were all in the entertainment business and you know that's a brutal business behind the scenes you know it's you're working uh you know, obviously, because you have to get up for East Coast. You know, if you work as an intern or an agent at ICM, let's say, uh, you have to get up at like five in the morning because you've got New York actors and 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 whatnot who are up and ready to audition and and negotiate whatever deals they have. So, you know, if you're a West Coast agent, you got to get up at five in the morning and you can't go to bed till probably eight at night because they're you can still do business with East Coast people till probably 11 their time. So it's a brutal business. Like you're up, you know, you're working 15-hour days, easy, Monday through Friday. Uh, and these guys on the weekends would work 40-hour <laughs> uh, days. Uh, they partied so hard. But I was friends with the 80s, with right? Yeah, it was the <laughs> 80s. It was clubs. It was, uh, I mean, I've never had a drink or drug in my life, but I've seen wackier things than probably Keith Richards because these, <laughs> these guys were like the Rat Pack times a hundred. Um, I mean, their sole goal was to get laid. And because uh, I was sober, like they were, and I was a lot bigger back then, like muscle-wise, uh, they, I think the thought process is, well, let's have Earl around us at all times so he can deflect any problems. And because uh, I was like, I looked like a jarhead. I had a flat top and I was super tan. And I was just like, really, I, everyone asked me if I was on roids and, and I wasn't. Uh, but after a couple of years of, you know, going to dinners and whatnot with these guys, they were like, dude, you got to get into comedy. You're the funniest guy we know. And we all represent the biggest of the big and you're funnier than them all. And they were like, well, just get into the business, you know, do some open mics. Here's some shows in Beverly Hills that are like at bars, but we'll, we'll call and get you on. And then, you know, find your way and then we'll help you make it. Uh, and so I got into, you know, doing all that. And then about a year into comedy when I was ready, okay, can you get me on The Tonight Show? Which is ridiculous to think I was ready. But, you know, back then I thought I was. Uh, and they all left the business except for one <laughs> to get into real estate. So... That's you know, a bummer. That's what it is. I mean, <laughs> yeah. uh, and the one who's still in uh, the business, uh, he's gigantic. His clients are like, it's mind blowing uh, that I've seen this guy naked and he, he's <laughs> doing like, 
I, I can't even calculate the deals he has to put together for his uh, star clients. Like, I mean, his, his, I would say his, he has his own agency, his roster probably, I mean, on films and TV per month, probably make 50 million a month. That's like, insane. Not, that's not what he makes, but like. No, but just, I imagine he has to have a pretty big pool of. I mean, successful people to make that much money. Oh, they're on it. TV, major movies, uh, one or two recording people who like are crossover people who do a little bit of everything. So, uh, but he can't really help me because stand up's its own island. Like, you could represent Arnold Schwarzenegger and you have all these massive movies and TV ideas, but like, stand up is like it's 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 its own world so like you know you have to have a stand-up specific team behind you because it, it's it's such a different animal than the rest of the entertainment business do you think it's uh do you think it's true that if you're in stand-up i mean you can have friends and you can have people that you look out for and you you know you want the best for but you're pretty much a nomad kind of just trying to carve out your own path right like when you're on the stage you're there alone and like there's no one necessarily pushing for your your success other than you oh no there's right? only like, people rooting against you in that room uh you know don't you know this goes to back to me being bitter or me being honest you know trust me every comic in that room wants you to bomb uh so they look better uh and uh but like you said, like it's now never been easier to make it on your own, uh, you know, through the advent of podcasts and, uh, you know, m a lot of comics uh, are now putting out their own specials on like YouTube. Uh, you know, I think Sam Morell did that with his last one. Uh, yeah. And I think uh, Hannibal Barras. Yeah. A lot and then, of uh, who I'm trying to, there was one other one, who, who, uh, Louis Gomez, who's like a big podcasting comic back east gas digital uh, yeah he just i mean i don't know what his thinking was but i'm sure it was like fuck it no one's giving me uh opportunities on conan or this or that i'm putting my own special on he has a great fan base um so that's kind of like what i'm shooting for is uh you know network i mean it's a younger business like you know, if you look at like roast battle, and, and that's not stand up, but like I was the, I think me and Jimmy Carr were the two oldest uh, contestants on, it, and he's like a gigantic comic, so I almost want to take him out of this <laughs> equation because you know he doesn't, he did roast battle just because I don't know, I'm sure he was bribed to do it, uh, but like if you take Jimmy Carr out of that, you know, it, it, it's clear that Comedy Central wanted like younger comics on the show and. And then, you know, I came out like a fucking maniac, so they, I forced them to use me, basically. Uh, but it, it, if you're an older comic, I think it, it's it's really hard. But, like you said, if you have a successful podcast, you can almost do it Stanhope style. And, you know, Stanhope doesn't really play clubs. He makes his own deals at bars and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, he, he's provided a model where... If, the industry, if you're not an industry darling, you can still make it on your own. So I'm trying to navigate like half Stan Hope, half, uh, you know, mainstream, you know, where, uh, you know, I want to play in clubs and, and pack it out. Uh, so it's just navigating that tricky, happy medium of, uh, you know, 
riding the line between what say yeah i mean you want to play the game a little bit because you know at the end of the day it's you know none of us do this for the art we do it because we want the approval of others you know <laughs> but it's true though like if if you unfortunately i i think it is true yeah as much as i want to be a purist and say that like this is about getting a message out there um the more i realize and the more i understand myself the more i interact with other comics we're definitely all just trying to get some sort of attention and yeah. you know recognition and just confirmation that you're all right. Well, but you know, if you did it for the art or whatever, you wouldn't yeah. care about clubs. You'd just do it in your living room and, and just you know have your friends come over and hey, what do you think of this joke? Oh, that's okay, great. Uh, you know, you want the attention of uh, ign- the acknowledgement of hey, you're funny because uh, that's just the way it is. I mean, people might not say that, but. You no, know. it's great when somebody tells you you're funny, right? Yeah, like, it's the best feeling in the world. Hell yeah, <laughs> it's like Gene Simmons of Kiss. He says he doesn't read, uh, he doesn't care what the reviewers think of his albums or Kiss's albums or tours or whatever. Uh, bullshit. I guarantee you, he's the first person to read a review on a Kiss concert in the Des Moines Register, or you know, he reads a Rolling Stone review on how Kiss's last album sucked. That, that's because otherwise, if it was just about making music, you would make it and never release it. You know, or the same with comedy specials, uh, you know, or or anything uh, you produce. If it was just about, uh, you know, wanting to work on your craft and you didn't care what people think, you wouldn't care if it got on TV or you wouldn't care what Rolling Stone said or, you know, uh, you know, I mean, some of the early reviews on Roast Battle were brutal. But. You know, not to uh, make it too kiss heavy, but uh, I know we both like kiss. Sure. and. I uh, I gotta say I just finished uh, listening to Paul Stanley's Face the Music audiobook again. I've read it before. Really awesome to hear him reading it though. And uh, I gotta admit, like I hadn't really checked out uh, the newer Kiss albums as much as the older ones. I've always kind of been a fan of Ace Frehley. Right. Um, but in listening to that book again, it kind of inspired me to listen to Monster. And I gotta say, you can really tell when they brought Tommy Thayer on because, like, like you said, like suddenly the quality went up, yeah. and it was uh, they were actually taking it seriously. Like you listen to Monster and Beyond, and like it's really polished. Um, it's the same band essentially. No, I mean, well, it kind of is. Like I, I like Sonic taking Boom, themselves. yeah, uh, better than Monster, but like Kiss is a much better band with. Tommy Thayer on guitar and Eric Singer on drums. It just feels tighter, right? Like, uh, oh, it's a hundred times tighter. But you know, that's the thing. Like with Kiss, I don't think anyone goes to a Kiss concert for the music. Like they should, you know. But oh, no, but they, they're they're hundred percent there for pyrotechnics. Yeah, <laughs> no, they are though. I mean, uh, yeah. the last Kiss concert was, uh, which I think was the last thing I did. I think it was on March fourth, and the world shut down pretty much the next day. Yeah. Uh, it was like unbelievable. It, they had this stage show where the it's like a spider type arms on the side of the stage, and at the end when they're doing rock and roll all night, uh, Gene gets on one side, Tommy gets on the other, and I've never seen this before. But Tommy and Gene could literally touch the sides of the venue, like because they're at, they're at such an angle where the arms go out, That's and, crazy. and they could touch the wall on either side of the arena and Paul's flying all over the place. And that was, that's impressive to see. Uh, yeah. Paul Stanley, if you have never been to a kiss concert and you may not, unfortunately at this point, um, who, well, who knows though? Who <laughs> knows? I mean, 
Trust me, if Kiss can find a way to play during a pandemic, if there's any <laughs> band that will have a concert, uh, you know, it's Kiss. They'll yeah. they'll find a way. Yeah, no, I got to admit, I um, I remember at least two incidences from growing up where I thought it was the end of Kiss, and then they ended up coming back. Here yeah. we are, twenty years later, right? And like, still, still. Oh yeah, I mean, Kiss <laughs> in the '80s was musically at their peak. I mean, you had uh, Benny Vincent who is like Van Halen like on the guitar and you had uh, after him Mark St. John who was only with him for one album uh, he's like the Oliver on the Brady Bunch he was there for such a short period of time uh he but he was too good of a guitar player to be in Kiss like I think they said Gene and Paul would look at him on stage and he was only he, it's like if you're a real Kiss nut you'll appreciate this he only played one and a half concerts with Kiss because uh, he, he was like so technically proficient and he he was just this amazing speed guitar player and it's like i'm sure gene and paul looked at him and like dude this is kiss man we like do the three chord thing we don't need you playing a million notes a second but it's like well this is who i am i, I, can't, I can't dumb down my skills uh and then bruce kula came in and, and he was like the perfect combination of Vinny and mark but without the craziness of either uh but you know kiss in the 80s is like looked at as well uh dude no one listens to kiss for the technical proficiency of the guitar player it's like we want the bombs we want the explosions we right. want the lasers pointing everywhere we want the drum kit to fly up to the arena and and the drummer twirling sticks on fire <laughs> and uh you know so kiss is a weird thing like the the better their music got in terms of the playing of it the, the worse the album sales were which is crazy yeah it it shouldn't be that way but i guess when you're trying to appeal to the masses uh power chords and strong simple structure definitely works a lot better than probably some of that shredding technical stuff well they were always trying to go with the times like you know kiss is always except in the early days where they were the leaders they've always followed the trends like in there was literally a period from like 79 to like 83 where they put out five albums all five sounded completely different like you know in 79 disco was in so they put out basically a disco sounding album uh and then 80 the car bands like the cars were popular so they put out an album unmasked which essentially sounds like a cars album and then uh, Pink Floyd came out with The Wall. So Kiss is like, well, we're going to do a concept album called The Elder. And, and it's probably one of their better albums, but it's probably their worst selling album ever. Uh, and then the new wave of uh, British metal bands like Judas Priest and Iron Maiden. And, and then Ozzy was kind of coming into his own. Uh, you know, so Kiss puts out Creatures of the Night. Which, and get a little heavier again. Right. And then uh, like Def Leppard and... and Bon Jovi were getting popular a few years later, so they put out Crazy Nights, which sounds like Kiss trying to imitate Bon Jovi. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, you know, Grunge was popular years later, and, and Kiss put out an album called Carnival of Souls, which if you don't know it's a Kiss record, if you just hand someone a, a blank CD of Carnival of Souls, they're going to think it's Stone Temple Pilots. Like, it's a great Stone Temple Pilots record. Uh, and then they got back into the reunion and stuff like that. But, like, uh, so, I mean, you don't see that in comedy. where com- I mean, you see comics trying to emulate others. But- yeah, but not, like, a full-on tribute. Like, I, I remember um, on Monster, there's definitely one track that sounds a lot like Kick Out the Jams by MC5. 
Yeah. I mean, um, and they admit it even in, in his book, you know, that they were trying to go for that. They were trying to kind of pay homage, I guess, to that sound. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, it's like I sound a lot of like uh, Stephen Wright and Robert Schimmel and, uh, um, you know, probably a couple others who are like John Mendoza. Like if you're a real comedy nerd, you know who John Mendoza is, uh, you know, but I have a slower delivery and, and I, I get the most... Uh, you sound like Stephen Wright comparison. Uh, I could see that. I mean, I'm not a one-liner guy like he is, but like we, we talk very like monotone and slow and laborious. Uh, and Robert Schimmel, rest in peace, was he was definitely my style of you know kind of bitter humor. Uh, he, he would do just silly jokes more than uh, you know. Like my favorite joke of his is uh, he checks into a hotel and he calls the concierge and says. Hey, where can I get fucked around here? <laughs> and the guy said, "Try the gift shop." And I like I love jokes like that. Um, and so, uh, but I mean, I guess we all emulate others. But I don't try and sound like Stephen Wright. It's just this who I fucking sound like. Do you think you have any direct uh, influences? Does anything inspire you? Not even just in comedy, but like in life. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, uh, in comedy, I actually grew up with non-stand-up. Uh, influences like Archie Bunker was my first really like even as a kid I'm like wow this guy is saying stuff that's pretty out there but he's still likable so I think that was the the basis for my stand-up is to say wacky things but still be likable at the end of the day I think um, you do a good job of that oh thanks man yeah, and then man. the white shadow was another influence I was very and still am heavenly heavily influenced by uh, the white shadow because that was a show it was only on uh, CBS for three years from I believe 79 to 81 uh, but it was so ahead of its time it was like a all-in-the-family ensemble uh, where you had it was a story about a white basketball player coaching in the ghetto and it was kind of a it was really it was like mash almost where it was a comedy but it was a drama as well and they tackled a lot of heavy uh, subjects like abortion rape uh probably one of my favorite episodes was when peter horton who's now a very famous producer director mm -hmm. it was his first acting role ever was he plays a closeted gay student and he's so tortured at his high school he goes to carver high thinking it's a fresh start no one will know i'm gay and so he plays on the basketball team and uh, there was this one day where the team goes, hey, we're going to go play pickup against this other group of dudes. And so they go to this old high school. And, uh, you know, there's a couple minutes of playing. And then it, I think one of the kids says, hey, remember this guy? He's a fag. Now, this is on CBS in like 79. Yeah, that's, that's crazy, man. Like, you can't get away with that anymore. And everybody, it's like such a powerful scene because in the Carver High, like Thorpe and... Uh, Coolidge and Salami are like looking at him like you could tell they're like oh you're gay so it was a very like power just almost like bullying like what it's like to be bullied all wrapped up into one you know homophobia and uh and of course in season two there was a it's probably one of my favorite hour-long episodes of any show where the coach takes Coolidge Salami and Thorpe to hit a racist country club and since i grew up pretty much in that environment like i it really like anyone who's ever played golf at a country club in the 70s or 80s you would go it's like caddyshack it's like 
this does happen there. And it was such a uh, humor-induced scene, but with racism. Like, you know, obviously Coolidge and uh, Thorpe are black, so uh, there's scenes where, you know, they're told to go get the clubs because the the snobby club uh, member thought they're caddies. And and there's some Jewish humor in there where, like, they're at the uh, grill room, which is where people eat in a country club. And... uh, this guy goes, I'll have the roast beef, oh, Jews. And Salami is like, hey, is that what Goldstein gets? And, you know, it's just, I love that humor uh, of just silly. Like, that's a, I guess you'd say that's a bad joke towards Jewish people. But the way Salami delivered the line was so stupid. No, I understand what you mean. Like That I don't think people would take offense to it. Right. So that was, those two shows were really my first comedy, like, I want to do this like that that salami guy is funny and it's funny because salami in real life timothy van patten he's like this huge director now he directed most of the sopranos uh, a lot of boardwalk empire yeah and uh you know he had another joke i like stupid humor and like there's right before they go to the country club he's uh the the they're like smoking pot or something on the in the baseball field and, and salami's got a golf magazine he's like hey i didn't know there was murder in golf and thorpe is like what are you talking about he's like well it says right here nicholas shot 64 at augusta and it's just like the dumbest joke <laughs> but that that's the kind of jokes i like doing to this day um and then i guess maybe my first stand-up influence and it, and none of these guys were really stand-ups, but were the Don outside of Don Rickles were the Dean Martin roast, mm. which were so much better than the roast you see on TV today. Where right it's, back when it was the Friars Club, yeah, it was actual like well, they were all friends. Like right. you know, if you look at the Justin Bieber roast outside, and I'm just picking a a random Comedy Central roast, like outside of Chris D'Elia, who Justin Bieber I think said he's my favorite comic. I want him on the dais. Right. Uh, you know, you had a bunch of people who didn't know Justin Bieber just shitting on the kid. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I thought Hannibal was the funniest. He just looks at him and goes, I don't know you. I don't like your music, but I just know I'll, I'll get better work after this roast is over. <laughs> and, uh, so honest. <laughs> yeah, he's like, that's Hannibal. And uh, so, but the Dean Martin roast, I really, because they were all friends. So right. like Don Rickles could look at Sammy Davis Jr., who was, incredibly black and go i think one of the jokes he said was either you're black or you fell into a bucket of m&ms <laughs> and like but the, but you know kids today would be like oh that's not that out there but in the 70s like it, it was crazy to say something like that yeah you um, look at don rickles now and it's kind of hard to grasp because like we've grown up in a different generation um but like he really pushed the limit you know despite having like a nice cache of racist jokes i mean he was really an innovator and he wasn't a racist no i mean and like uh like you said he was friends with sammy davis jr and like most of his friends were black to be honest or maybe not most but like probably half of his friends were black um and i always direct people if you want to hear a comedy album and it's only 38 39 minutes is uh don rickles live at the sands in 68 and you know you might not be blown away by the material but it's what he was saying, and more importantly, when he was saying it in 1968. Right. Like, 
This is right in the, the Watts riots, and like there, I guess there was a black guy. I don't think there's a video; it's just an audio CD. Mm-hmm. And you can tell there's a black guy at the back of the room. He's like, "Hey, uh, to the Negro gentleman in the back, have a good summer." And, and like, <laughs> the, a young kid would be like, well, "What does that mean?" It's like, "Well, this is in the middle of the Watts riots." Uh, <laughs> so just to say something like that, and he's like, "If you see teeth back there, it's not an ivory hunt." And, and you know, it's, so it's just like this is crazy. And like he uh, he had a gay joke. I, I forget. Uh, I guess there was a gay guy uh, in the crowd, and he's like, "I knew you were gay. I remember you from the army when you would wake up and go, it's morning.' And you know, it's just, <laughs> you could not do any of that today. Yeah. I'm I mean, like, yeah. I don't know if, if Don Rickles would be allowed to do stand up today. Uh, which is a damn shame because you look at him in even movies like. Uh, dirty work, you know, and he, he he was a great character in that movie. He played the uh, manager of a the theater. Movie theater, yeah, yeah, and it was so not PC. Um, but that wasn't what he was about. He, PC wasn't a thing yet, you know. He was about pushing boundaries, and I think from what you know, I didn't grow up around him, but from what I can understand, it seemed like he was trying to push people to really examine, like you know, what he's saying, and like you know, just really pushing the limit of what's allowed. Yeah, at I the mean, same time, kind of reflecting back the society, you know. But if you go back and watch those Dean Martin roasts, yeah. I mean, if you like the Comedy Central roasts, which some are good, some aren't, uh, that's anything really. Uh, but you know, you'll see the difference in that they all knew each other. Like you know, the dais, and it's really sad because I would say ninety percent of the dais from any Dean Martin roast, they're dead. Uh, I mean, there's, I mean, I think maybe Rich Little is the only. Probably maybe one other that's around, but like, you know, Foster Brooks, who was like, if you really want to see what a roast is uh, or what roasting is, just YouTube Foster Brooks uh, roast of Don Rickles. And it's only about six minutes. And it's like the perfect roast set. Like, because you could tell he, he was friends with Don Rickles and his wife, but his, most of the set was about Foster Brooks acting like he was fucking Don Rickles' wife. And it's, <laughs> it's so funny. And I'm not going to do the jokes justice, but he's like, yeah, Don, you know, when I'm at your house with your wife, uh, when you're on TV, we laugh and we cry. And sometimes we even turn the sound on. <laughs> and then, like, it's just so <laughs> stupid. And, uh, you know, he had some per- he had some hacky things. of like, yeah, Don Pickles, uh, I hear you're a real dilly. <laughs> it's just, it's so stupid. And I think younger people who are today that are, you know, more into the cruder humor. And, and I sound old saying this because it, it's what my parents used to tell me. Like when I would say, hey, I love this band, Rat. They would be like, Rat, you should have been around when Elvis was on. And he was so wild that they couldn't show his waist below uh, or they couldn't show below his waist on TV because of his dance moves. I'm like, oh, Mom, what are you talking about? I'm watching tawny katane right now do the splits on a jaguar and basically show her beaver belt uh <laughs> but but now i sound like that and I'm saying, yeah danny you should have been around when you know don rickles was being uh, roasted by foster brooks and but you know it's just I guess yeah, it's, it's a, the nature of time unfortunately yeah i mean Moves i'm sure <laughs> yeah i mean you know what's wacky today in 20 years probably won't be wacky yeah um you know, I, I'm sure people in 20 years will look at roast battle and, you know, in terms of the humor we were doing on that show, and going, uh, that's not that bad, <laughs> you know, so and so in 
2050 is saying this. Uh, <laughs> so I guess every generation has their version of what's uh, radical. Like, you know, I'm sure kids today would be bored by the White Shadow. They would watch the golf episode uh, uh, or the Peter Horton episode of the White Shadow and go, uh, this is boring. Where are, the, where are the gunshots? Where are the... You never know, though. I mean, I... I... Where the lasers? That uh, in, yeah, exactly. I firmly believe though that inspiration can come from anywhere, and uh, I feel like too many people overlook history and old things in the past because, like, that's that's where we come from. And like, honestly, like, uh, you can you can get so much knowledge just by studying like what uh, things were like twenty years ago. You know, like I know people in the comedy scene and like the Inland Empire that are explicitly against anything old they don't listen to old music they don't listen to old comedy they don't have any interest in any of that and i think they're missing something because you never know when inspiration's going to hit yeah it's like you look at action movies today kids or younger people you know they're been uh, brought up with like the fast and furious movies especially the last couple which have been so fucking crazy with the cgi <laughs> and special effects i'm sure paul walker's glad he's not around to see it uh, but you know, I grew up with like Predator, which is like uh, not Harvey Weinstein or uh, certain people in the LA comedy scene, but like the one with Schwarzenegger, uh, <laughs> which has no special effects. Like it's literally seven guys. Uh, I mean, when Carl Weathers is the best actor in the film, uh, you got some big problems. <laughs> but it was just seven dudes who, on paper, should not have worked. I mean, if you if you look at the seven actors in Predator. You had Shane Black, who was the, who wrote the movie. I'm sure he just put himself in the movie. Uh, he's the white guy with glasses who gets killed first. So he had no acting experience that I know of. You had Jesse the Body Ventura, who was a pro wrestler, no acting experience. You had Sonny Landon, who played, of course, my favorite, the Indian. Uh, he had, like, he was a stunt man and did porn. Um, <laughs> you had Bill Duke, who obviously is he's the black bald actor. He actually he was probably the best actor. Uh, he's a legendary black uh, actor director, but you know half the cast had zero acting experience, and it's not like Schwarzenegger's a great actor. No, <laughs> but that cast together somehow worked, and it was like watching Goodfellas. Uh, you know, it just you know it's like making a cake with like lard and shit, and somehow it comes <laughs> out tasting like peppermint. Uh, <laughs> it was just such a good concept of a movie and and just I loved how you didn't see the actual predator until like 80% of the movie was done. So you had this anticipation. So that last 20% of the movie it was like so good because you're so invested in what this predator looks like and and the interaction it had with Schwarzenegger and the other uh you know people it killed. Uh, but nowadays you don't get that in like a Fast and Furious. You get just like these tons of special effects. Yeah. You get action sequences that are so fucking impossible to believe are happening that it, it's not the same to me. Yeah, there's definitely not as uh, big of an emphasis on building suspense anymore. Yeah, in most like, uh, most films, pacing is not really a thing. It's all just kind of yeah, so let's boom, get boom, it boom, down. Boom. Let's get the gunshots yeah. and lasers going two minutes into the opening credits. It's like a lot like pro wrestling, like. You know, obviously, I'm a big pro wrestling guy. I don't know why I say obviously. Like, yeah, if you like, don't know Earl, and uh, again, listen to Inappropriate Earl because you will learn so much about Earl and uh, comedy and life and 
there's just a lot of wisdom on there. But yeah, Earl's a huge wrestling fan. Um, and yeah, if you look his name up, I guarantee you will see at least one photo of him as like the ultimate warrior or um, like a foe sting. Yeah, you I know, mean, like, uh, or you'll see a picture of me with actual wrestlers like uh, Booker T. You were T. actually uh, Rowdy Rowdy Piper's co-host on his podcast. Yeah, right? the Piper's Pit podcast, I think they called it. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I think uh, Rowdy would come up to the comedy store and uh, he'd usually come just to play the piano in the main room at the time when there was a piano in the main room. Uh, I th- there might still be one in the dark, but there's there's this one section of the main room behind the stage. It's so dark, I don't know what's back there right now. Uh, but uh, and then he'd come in the original room usually and watch us all do stand up, and uh, then he would ask to go on. And uh, I think uh, he was in the back one night when I was doing a. Ch- I wasn't even doing jokes, but it was just like how angry I was that my favorite wrestler Sting got fucked over uh, when he went to WWF. <laughs> And uh, I think he said, you should come on the podcast and talk about it. And so I went on his podcast, and it went so well. The producer was like, hey, do you want to be the co-host? Because sometimes Roddy would uh, veer off track. Like, you know, he's been doing wrestling for 40 years. And, uh, yeah, I imagine uh, he'd probably get at least one brain injury at that point. I mean, if you think. Let now he, alone whatever else. I mean, you know, I don't want to turn this into a wrestling podcast, but like he got taught wrestling by Stu Hart, Bret Hart's father. And if you, if you, if you're a wrestling fan of, you know, uh, the Hart foundation, of any level, like the Hart foundation, the Hart family are the first family of wrestling. Uh, well that and the Von Erics, but, uh, but Stu Hart would, uh, teach people wrestling at his ranch in Calgary. And he basically ran it as a real, event like if you went to Stu Hart to learn wrestling you wrestled uh like if you wanted to feel what it was like to take a pile driver uh, you know like you took a pile driver a real one <laughs> uh if you wanted to do a, a figure four leg lock because you think you're the next Rick Flair he'd actually put you in a real figure four leg lock and he would do the move in real time yeah I gotta say like people that are very critical of uh wrestling and that you know say that it's quote-unquote fake um even though it may be a little bit written there's nothing fake about the injuries that these guys get when they're actually doing these maneuvers i mean uh i mean it's scripted uh but they still have to do the moves like you know if you're the ultimate warrior and the the script the writer comes in says hey this is the finish of the match uh you're gonna throw macho man against the ropes you're going to pick him up and put him in a gorilla press slam, which is basically uh, lifting Macho Man, uh, you know, straight up. So you're holding him like a, a statue. Like it's a military press type move if you're a workout person. And that Macho Man's probably 260 pounds of solid muscle. And if there's anything more difficult than, li- say, doing a military press at a gym, which is just weights, it's doing it with a lo- dead weight, like just live dead weight yeah i can't imagine uh yeah that's that's gotta hurt <laughs> like that but how, like you know i'm it'd be like asking you right now to lift me up over your head you could probably lift 205 pounds if it was just like a potato sack right. you just pick it up you you know uh work your hands around the the edges or whatever 
But, you know, I'm 205 pounds. You'd have a lot more trouble doing that. Yeah. Uh, just because there's, I don't have an edge. You'd have to, like, okay, I just touched his leg and it, it, it squished because, it, I don't know, it's, it, it squeezed fat or whatever. Like, how do I do this? So they still have to do these maneuvers, which is incredibly, you know, complex. And, uh, you know, I remember... Uh, when I went to WrestleMania, I think it was 21. I might be off. It was at Staples Center. And I was dating the one of the managers from the band Motorhead. Uh, and they do Triple H's uh, theme music. That's so cool. It was amazing. I mean, there were so many things backstage I saw. Like Motorhead, because their guitar player, Phil, was a little out of his mind in that era. Like, from what, I don't want to know. <laughs> but he was... Uh, he was reliable, but he was unreliable. So they, you know, this was obviously probably the biggest thing Motorhead had ever done was playing live in terms of a mainstream audience. Um, and they had a second guitar player underneath the stage. And so I, I was like, wait a minute, what? who's this guy underneath the stage? And it was like a, such a weird thing you know and then Shelly uh would be like well you know kiss doesn't play on most of their albums right i'm like what are you talking about he's like they're too like, you think gene simmons at 60 years old is going to come in and play bass parts for 12 hours they just this is who play i won't say the guy's name but this is who plays gene's bass parts it's crazy. Uh, i mean paul sings the songs but like you know a lot of times he doesn't do his own guitar parts they just have studio guys come in and 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 then I'm backstage walking around, and I was in like a fantasy world. I'm seeing all these gigantic pro wrestlers, and they're just larger than life. They're like superheroes. And I see The Undertaker and Kurt Angle had this amazing match, and they're supposed to be sworn enemies. Uh, I hate you. I'm going to kill you. And then I see them almost both in tears because they were so exhausted, hug each other, and their families are around, and they just like, hey, great match, man. I love you. And I was like, oh, I, I probably shouldn't be seeing this. like, But... The whole point of that story is like they both were limping. They looked like they had been shot seven times. Uh, probably not the best <laughs> joke to do right now, but uh, so I know what you mean. Though. They look pretty beat. They up. looked, yeah. and they're both. I, I mean, Kurt Angle's an Olympic medal winner. Uh, the Undertaker's a, a incredibly uh, gifted physical uh, specimen, and they. So it's it's scripted, but it's real. And I challenge anyone. If you think wrestling's fake, uh, I can arrange for you to wrestle five minutes with Dolph Ziggler. And, <laughs> and no, I'm because you know we're friends. He'll show you how fake it is, and I guarantee you, you won't be walking right for two weeks. If anybody wants to take him up on that, you can contact me or Earl directly, uh, and we'll Which make it happen. Me. It bothers <laughs> me that you think it's fake, like you know. And I know we got to wrap it up, but like. The, I was on stage one night at the Comedy Store. Eleanor uh, Kerrigan, the great, the legendary Eleanor Kerrigan, she used to do wrestling, uh, the gorgeous ladies of wrestling. And uh, not the Netflix show, but there was an actual glow. And uh, I can't think of her name, but like, I yeah, used Misty to know Powers it. or some yeah. uh, Easy Rider. Easy Rider, yeah, that's right. So if you're a fan of comedy, you, you obviously know who Eleanor is. Look up Easy Rider and you'll see her wrestle. She had a bunch Shout of her... Shout out to the Comedy Store podcast. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, uh, Eleanor and Rick Ingram do a fantastic job. Uh, but one night at the store, it was pretty late, and uh, Eleanor was in the room watching me with all her wrestling friends from Glow. And this so one cool. 
wrestler, and I forget her name, but she's awesome. Uh, I think I did a joke just trying to rile them up how I thought wrestling was fake. And she's like, oh, you want to see how fake it is? I'm like, I bet I could take you. Put me in your best move. And uh, this girl, and she's a little older, probably in her 50s, like, oh, you're, I hear you're a Ric Flair fan. Let me put you in a figure four. I'm like, you got it, tough guy. Because she had a mullet. And, <laughs> uh, and so she puts me in a figure four on stage. Now, you know, in wrestling, they have all these code signals. Like if a wrestler's really hurt, yeah. they make uh, the, the, the X sign with their arms to go, hey, like I'm really messed up. And in MMA, they tap. You know, when, when they're in actual pain, they'll tap. Uh, the ground. Uh, I was in such pain 30 seconds in. I have a torn ACL. <laughs> My right leg is completely rebuilt. And uh, she focused primarily on my right leg. And I was in such pain, I was tapping my own leg, my left leg, thinking it was her leg. Uh, like I lost my train of thought. And Eleanor had to get in there and go, hey, you're really fucking hurting him. Um, so like, <laughs> and this was a girl who probably, long story short, maybe is 140 pounds. You think in a fight or whatever that I would kick her ass. Uh, she could have retorn my ACL. It was such a gorilla grip on my legs. Uh, so I, that's why when I went on Tom Segura's podcast, uh, I was actually not mad, but I was like, oh, you think wrestling's fake? Uh, let you and I do a wrestling match, and we'll see how fake it is. I don't know what I'm doing, but I guarantee you if I put you in a figure four leg lock, I can uh, rip every ligament in either leg. And you could do the same to me because he's a big dude. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that you know, I was like you know, upset. Dude, I, I get it. Um, could you ever see yourself being a wrestler or anything? At 51? An no. Uh, I'm my, yeah. I could be a manager. Uh, like, I've always loved managers because like, they are like the, the hype men. Uh, right. Like, I would love to be a manager for like Dolph Ziggler. Uh, you know, because, you know, growing up, like, it goes back to like how it was when I was a kid versus you. Like, and if you watch wrestling now, you don't have managers. You have usually some big-titted bimbo, and I get it. It's, you know, wrestling is still will always still be for young boys, probably from the age of you know, I don't know, ten to like I don't know, twenty-five. I My mean, that, grandfather still watches Monday Night Raw. Oh yeah, I mean, you, it, it'll always be a guy-heavy uh, audience. So I get wanting to have someone with huge tits walk out, Dolph Ziggler or whoever. Um, but when I was a kid, they, they didn't really have hot valets bring the wrestlers out. It was usually an old white guy like Freddie Blassie, the Grand Wizard, not or the Great Wizard. The Grand Wizard's a different character. Not uh, a good character. <laughs> Lou Albano. Uh, and these guys, especially if a wrestler wasn't good with words, yeah. like some guys, it's like comedy. You either have it or you don't. And some people are good on the mic. Some aren't. Ric Flair, Rick Rude, uh, the Ultimate Warrior. Rick Ingram. Uh, Rick Ingram is great All with great crowd work. on the mic. But I mean, <laughs> yeah. like Rick Ingram is amazing at crowd work. Like he's the best. I think him and Ian Bag are the two best crowd work comics out there. And crowd work. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough to follow. It, it's amazing to watch. It's off the top of your head um, to watch Rick or. Uh, Ian, uh, and you either have it or you don't. There's comics who try and do crowd work. It just doesn't, if it's not in you, it's just not, it's like, it's just not. Uh, and that's, you know, some, like there's a wrestler, and I know, I, don't, I apologize for talking no, about no, wrestling so right. much, but it kind of goes with stand up. 
named Lance Storm. You know, Lance Storm is one of the greatest technical wrestlers uh, in the history of wrestling. He was horrific on the mic. He was so bad that, and it was probably a comedy writer said, this is your gimmick, that you're so boring on the mic that that's funny. And so they worked it into his actual in-ring persona that he would try and talk tough, and he, it was horrible, but it was so funny. Um, so, you know, it, it, uh, whether it's stand-up, whether it's, you know, some people aren't good front men in rock. Like they're uncomfortable. You yeah. can tell Kurt Cobain was almost shy or uncomfortable. Yeah. And here he's in the biggest band of the land at that time. Right. Uh, Little did he know this sleepy grunge sound would become yeah. such a popular thing, I'm sure. I think that's why he killed himself. Was he was so uncomfortable having to front in front of 30,000, 40,000 people. But then you take a guy like David Lee Roth, Paul Stanley. Dude, David Lee Roth, one of the best showmen. Um, maybe yeah maybe yeah. not the greatest singer even in his prime he would talk the songs but as a front man i think he's the greatest front man in rock and roll history like, definitely man. there's no one who comes close to his charisma his shtick even when i saw van halen in 2012 and he clearly like it was it's pretty rough vocally but you couldn't not watch him he's so funny and like He's doing like these judo moves and like twirling the uh, whatever the stick baton he had. Or, yeah, yeah this for baton. some reason. Like, yeah. It was like, what? The, like, this has nothing to do with the, the song, but I'm You couldn't take your eyes off him. Yeah, I remember seeing with um, my dad when I was younger at the Honda Center. And uh, it was one of the most amazing things I've ever witnessed. I remember at the end, he came out with a top hat right. and like a, a suit coat. I think he's saying I'm just a gigolo and then like a glitter cannon exploded on the entire audience. Yeah, and I mean, like, it was amazing. <laughs> you, 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 well, you either have it or you don't. Yeah. It's like uh, there's been players like in football who've tried to be Deion Sanders with the, the funny moves when he is returning an interception for a touchdown. And there have been players who tried, I'm going to be like Dion and do something wacky. It's just not, this ain't working. That's not yeah. you. Uh, or in hockey, you know, everyone tries to be Ovechkin when he scores. He does these funny things to the crowd. And there's been other players who, I'm going to be Ovechkin and flip off the crowd or like do something funny. It's, this isn't working. Just score the goal and go back to the bench. Uh, or, in the, you know, I'll, I'll even bring in roast battle. Like there have been, uh, you know, because Roast Battle was such a fun show at, at some points that you had like alternative comics wanting to do it, and it's just ah, this doesn't work. You're a great comic, but this format's not for you. Oh man, it sounds like I could probably keep talking to you all day. Um, do you have a cutoff on how long you do your show? Honestly, we typically do it about thirty minutes to an hour, but I've had a lot of fun. Where are we at now? We're about an hour and a half. I okay. feel like we could probably keep going too, but um. I, I let's cut it short. Um, it's your podcast, baby. Whatever you want. Damn though, I, I have a feeling. I, I mentioned on the last podcast that we might be switching up the format a bit. Might be going longer because and might be bringing some people back because I feel like me and Earl could talk a lot more uh, about a lot of stuff. Oh and, yeah. Uh, hopefully, if if you're down, I'd love to have. Oh, you back absolutely. Now. I mean, we didn't really even get into stand up necessarily. Or uh, yeah, I mean, we know. could talk about. I'm sure you have a million more stories about like Brody Stevens and oh like the comedy God. store and like cutting your teeth there than like most people in existence. So oh, yeah, I mean, I, I would so, love to have you back. And absolutely. More, I mean, man. so many funny roast battle stories, uh, you know, uh, like going to Montreal to do that and like 
first time was like amazing uh it's like this, it was great. So yeah, there's. I mean, you, when you do something for twenty years, you, you have a lot of stories. Oh, dude, I bet. And uh, well, you're definitely coming back, man. I, I don't know when, but I'm definitely gonna have you back. Um, before we get going, though, uh, I usually ask people right before we wrap up uh, if you could go back in time and give yourself some advice that might help you get through life a little bit easier. Like, is there anything that comes to mind? Um. Let me see. I mean, stand-up wise, I would say I wish I would have started earlier, because I started at thirty, which is like a hundred years old in, in the world of stand-up that is currently going. I mean, if you look at most people on TV, they're younger. Like I said, if you, if you take away Jimmy Carr from the season one cast, the roast battle, I was definitely the oldest one on it by like fifteen years. Um, but in like life advice. Uh, you know, my parents were incredibly bizarre, you know, uh, they slept in different rooms, they loved each other, they were just, you know, my dad was a, a early riser, my mom was a beyond night owl, so that's why they just kept different schedules, uh, but they raised me to just uh, treat everyone the same, I think my mom said uh, two specific examples of we all shit out of the same hole which is like the best you could take the hottest girl on a victoria's secret runway show you could look at her she's got the big tits she's perfect body tan and at some point she's gonna have diarrhea yeah and then they're uh, just people yeah i mean and you could take a good looking guy like uh i don't know whoever matt broussard who's like a great great comic and and friend of uh me uh mine i don't want like using like Shaquille O'Neal English here. Uh, but at some point, he's going to have to take a shit. As beautiful as he is, he's going to have to be on the toilet one night, and the bottom of that toilet is going to look like a Picasso painting. Um, and then the other advice my mom gave me, which I think is perfect life advice for everyone, because it's like, and my mom told me this when I was like 12, which was a little bizarre, but she's like, Earl, be nice to everyone, because there's always someone with a bigger dick in the room. So when I was 12 years old, 13 years old, 14 years old, I would literally look at everyone in the room's crotch and going, well, he looks like he has a big dick. I should be nice to him. You know, because I, I, I take things literally. But, <laughs> you know, it, it, I think if you take that advice and say apply it in the stand-up world, like, you know, you might say, well, Earl's on the jellies. So he's the big deal in the room. And then Russell Peters walks in and is like, Russell Peters makes $22 million a year, whatever he makes doing stand-up. Uh, he's like plays football stadiums. He plays hockey arenas in Canada. That's the guy with the biggest dick in the room. And then you could see like, uh, I'm trying to think of, you know, I don't know, Neil Brennan coming. That's the creator of the Chappelle show. Oh, and, the, and so he's got a, you know, big, here comes David Spade. He's on SNL. Here comes Rob Schneider. Like, so like you should always be nice to everyone. I mean, my dad was friends with literally uh prostitutes and billionaires and he treated the prostitutes nicer uh so and i see it a lot in the stand-up world especially at my level of you know whatever level of fame for a back lack of better word i have or uh, notoriety uh you know I, I see like i should say too um you are by far the most accomplished comedian in person that i've had on this podcast so far so well, you're in big really trouble looking to 
<laughs> you're in big trouble with that. But like it goes. Just saying, man. Like everybody should look into your to what you've done, and it's an honor to even have you here. I did. It's you've always been good to me. But you know, the whole point of that is like, like I might be the most known or or whatever, not famous, but most accomplished person you've ever had on this podcast. So maybe my ego gets a little boost from that and go, yeah, I'm the fucking man. And then, you know, when this is over and you leave and I'll have a text from Russell Peters saying, hey, Kiss is in concert. You want to go see him? I was like, oh, yeah, he knows Kiss. Like, I'm a fan of Kiss. He knows them. He does projects with Gene or, or you know, I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, oh, okay, I might have been in bench warmers, but uh, David Spade was on the poster. Right. Uh, so I, I, I've been raised to be incredibly humble. I think that's a really good, a really good character trait, though, man. And well, it can be, but it's also, and I know we got to wrap up. No, it's all right. But like being humble almost hurts you in comedy because if you yeah. look at a lot of people who get success in this business, it's the people who brag about how good they are, how good their podcast is, or how successful they are on the road. And you know, like you know, I had one uh, person brag about. I think they played Canada. And their shows were sold out, and I knew the owner of the club, and the owner was like, dude, we had to paper the whole room. <laughs> so technically, yes, the shows were sold out, uh, but uh, very few people paid. Right. Like, uh, so, but it, you know, this comic gets a lot of work because people go, oh my God, he sold out in this room in Canada. Let's have him in our room. And, and you know, whereas if he was honest, he, he would have been like, hey, I basically perform for free. So I don't think the other club owners would have wanted him if if that was the case. So like honesty and comedy, honestly, I, I don't know if it's a good uh, you know, tribute or trait to have because it's a fine line of walking that line of uh, you want to be like, you'll be honest. So people will be, hey, let's ask girl this question about, um, you know, so-and-so special because he'll give you the real deal. But if you ask me about say someone's comedy special and i know they're friends with someone who i want to get in with you know it'd probably be a better move to say it wasn't a good special you know well, there you have it unfortunately fortunately i don't know take it as you will uh, but from the greater Earl Skakel, you need a little bit of bravado you need a little bit of you, you need, need to shake little... some hands and kiss some babies. Yeah, right? I mean, you got to be like a chameleon. You got to be part bullshitter, part truth teller, part, um, you know, in between. Like one of my favorite people in the world is Kevin Brennan, who's Neil Brennan's brother, and he's a New York uh, comic and podcaster. Like he keeps it. You think I keep it real? He almost keeps it too real. He, <laughs> but I that's see. what I love about him is he doesn't give a fuck. No, like, yeah, he doesn't. Um, <laughs> but I love that. But, you know, it's like in my case, like, you know, I know we keep saying we're going to wrap it up. So I'll, I'll honestly try and wrap it up with this. Right. I'm enjoying this, to be honest. So, oh, so am I. And if you're out there listening and uh, this is a little bit longer than you expected, what Just can I say, man? Enjoy it. Hit pause and come yeah. back to it. But I feel the same way. Like, I always try and keep my podcast around an hour. Yeah. But, you know, every now and then, like I did a, a podcast with Steve Simone that was literally three and a half hours and we probably could have done another hour, and it wasn't boring. Uh, so now I, with my podcast, I'll be like, I stop when it gets boring. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, in, in the world of stand-up, uh, you know, it's, it's such a fine line of, uh, you got to be like seven different personalities. And, and you have to like, you know, when I spoke out about my treatment on Roast Battle with 
uh, you know, against Comedy Central. You're like, you know, I'm, I'm at, you have to be calculating. You have to sit there, at least I have to be. And so this goes to advice to young comics. Uh, don't try and burn bridges because none of us are big enough to burn bridges. Um, but, you know, I sat there and I said, okay, well, if I really talk about how I feel about how I was treated, what are the consequences? And the consequences to me were they won't use me on Comedy Central. But I was like, well, they're not using me now. So I'm going to be completely honest. And, and it actually got me on their comedy on festival, Clusterfest. Yeah. I think they basically said, let's give him Clusterfest so he'll shut up. <laughs> and they treated me great on Clusterfest. Uh, but, hey, man, you kind of won. Well, but it wasn't never about, well, I'm going to like speak out about right. these things so I can get something from them. It's just, it goes to being really honest. And like, you know, I've had a lot of conversations about, you know, probably my favorite episode of my podcast outside of the Tommy episodes was the one I had with Barry Katz, who's a very famous. Mm, yeah, I remember listening to that one. Yeah, he's Dane Cook's, or was Dane Cook's manager. He was Chappelle's manager. I mean, the guy's, like, his client roster, past, mainly past, not present, is a who's who. Um, and we talked for two hours about, he's like, Earl, I, I've heard you on podcasts talk about how you were treated on Roast Battle. We're going to talk about it. And he basically gave Comedy Central's point of view, and I gave my point of view. And I'm very methodical. You wouldn't think I am, but you know, I had nine different grievances I had, and I went over every one with Barry. And he's like, you know, man, at the end of the day, you force your way on the show. And I'm like, well, dude, that's like the whole point is why did I have to force my way on a show? I held build, right? And so like, it was a fascinating uh, back and forth. I mean, I still to this day disagree with everything he said, uh, <laughs> but it was a great, almost like that old CNN show crossfire where they would have like a Republican and then a Democrat. Right. And then I think, uh, I forget who was like the in between. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, if you, if you get to, if you want to start out with one interesting and very informative episode of inappropriate Earl. Uh, that would be a very good one. I think it was like last year. Yeah, was, I think a year and a half ago. Yeah. I mean, if I'm assuming you have a lot of comics as listeners. Yeah. So I would, I'm assuming too, to be honest, because I I don't know, but you know what? I get some random hits from different countries. Yeah. I'm really not sure who's listening. Why people from New Zealand and France are tuning in? But hell, I like it. Yeah, I mean, so, if you're a comic, I would say uh, if you start listening to inappropriate Earl, I would definitely say the very first episode you should listen. And I think it's around episode 92 or something, um, is the first Tommy Morris interview. Cause he was the old talent coordinator of the comedy store. And, uh, you know, he, he left under a cloud of controversy. And, and even when he was, he was the talent coordinator for, I think like 12 years, he was very controversial in some of his decisions. Um, and I think I said 10 words in three hours. Uh, he was the star. Yeah. Uh, and I think people, I think it worked because people thought I was going to just shit talk him. Why didn't you pass me? Why weren't you nice to me? I, lo I let him hang himself. And uh, and then he came back. Uh, the second interview was like good. Like a day later or something? Like a day later. Yeah. I'm like, hey, man, come back anytime, thinking he never like hit me up. And then like two days later, he's like, what are you doing right now? I'm like, oh, I'm just watching TV. He's like, well, I'm ready to come back on again. I'm like, what the fuck? And we did like a, you know, the second interview is good. 
Um, but it's kind of like Rocky too. It's good, but it's not as good as the first right. one. And then the Barry Katz interview, if you're a comic, or really just interested in how the entertainment business works, yeah. uh, I would say that's uh, the Barry Katz one is um, fascinating because there were he's probably the most well-known comedy manager ever. Yeah. Um, just because he was Dane's manager in his peak of whatever. So, and then, you know, there's other fun ones, a lot of roast battle-related ones, uh, and, you know, there's some cool hockey ones. If you like hockey, you know, I had, I had some NHL players on, and I've had, uh, um, you know, a lot of pro wrestlers on, obviously, yeah. Roddy and uh, Eric Bischoff. If you really like wrestling, you'll know who he is. And yeah, if you enjoyed any aspect of this podcast, I'm willing to bet you're going to enjoy Inappropriate Earl. Um, so definitely, definitely check that out subscribe and uh while you're at it please subscribe rate and review this podcast yeah you know people please (laughs) people don't understand like you we've been talking for almost an hour and 45 minutes or whatever like it's free content you're not asking anyone to pay for this no it's a lot of work to edit it i mean if you see uh well you might see in the pictures if you see danny set up he had to come to my house he had to set up a basically a mobile podcasting situation um you know i'm sure he spent gas you live i mean i don't know if you want to tell people where you live but you live pretty like, far lo- like long beach or <laughs> Even something further now okay so yeah, you live, know uh good good distance from here <laughs> so he spent literally probably yeah. 20 bucks 30 bucks in gas um and he's not making one dollar off this not that i even want to um but you do though i mean eventually it would be cool but honestly Right now, it's at this stage where I just want to create something meaningful. Maybe, uh, I mean, not to say that I wouldn't love to monetize it, because who wouldn't? Free money, or money, not even free, but, you know, money's great. It helps. It helps in life, you know. But at the same time, uh, I feel like there's so much intrinsic value just having these conversations. Like, the amount of knowledge and wisdom you just dropped, um, especially just coming from your very unique perspective it's invaluable well i wish you know? i had someone i'm saying like me but like when i first started or if you're new into comedy and you're getting discouraged uh you know i wish there was someone of my experience level back then that said hey earl this is what you should do like uh, just like real real fast like i started doing comedy with jeselnik and whitney cummins and like especially with Whitney, we'd do these open mics, and she'd be like, "Hey, Earl, let's go write." And I'd be like, "No, nah, I'm gonna hang out with my friends and shit." And now she's like beyond a mogul in the comedy world. So I wish I had someone say, "Hey, maybe you should write with Whitney instead of going with your friends to Jerry's Deli to pick up chicks." Uh, <laughs> and you know, I mean, me and Anthony, or I mean, I consider him a friend, but like, you know, I, I should have like kind of followed what he was doing back then because now he's a huge star. Um, and although I'm happy with where I'm at in comedy, you always want more. Like if you're on a cartoon, you want a movie. If you're on a movie, you want a cartoon. If you're on a TV show, you want a movie. If you're, if you're an actor, you want to be a producer. If you're a producer, you want to be an actor. Like you're never satisfied. So, uh, but I do wish, uh, if I can drop one final note to, if you're a comic listening, just write as much as you can, go up as much as you can. And I know that's hard now because there's no uh shows that i know of uh and uh network that, if i could leave you with one thing network like i uh remember natasha legero uh wanting to do shows together and i kind of blew her off and I, i'm gonna go out with my friends we're gonna go to uh i don't know uh 
house of pies on uh, Vermont and pick up chicks and like Natasha probably went home and wrote um and now look at her she's on a tv show she's a gigantic headliner so uh you know you can party later you can go pick up chicks later if you're a female comic you can go get late well you can get late anytime you want if you're a female comic given <laughs> the males you're around uh but you know put the work in now so you don't have to later like i'm working harder at 51 uh, than I should. I, I should be on TV and move not movies necessarily, but I should have a much more successful podcast. But because I, although I worked hard back then, I didn't take it seriously. And comedy is a business. Make no mistake about that. You might be at uh, the rec room, or what was that? What's the open mic in, on Monday nights in Huntington Beach? Uh, yeah, it used to be the rec room. You yeah. might be at the rec room Monday night, and you're with Joe Urell and, and great comics like him, and then they all up, go Joe? out. The Joe, shout out to Joe. I, I, did, I did this podcast early on. It was pretty fun. Um, nice but like, put the work in now so you don't have to at 51 be humping it you know uh like a mule like a pack mule in the right. western all right well you heard it here first guys work hard party later uh earl i want to thank you again for you. Uh, coming on and uh for allowing me to come out here man and just on a personal note i want to thank you again just for always being a nice guy with how it uh, should be you know yeah dude and you just always been real i'm really only mean to people who are mean to me and, and very few people are mean to me uh, so, uh, you know, keep that in mind, guys, be nice to everybody. Cause one day the people you shit on, I guarantee you will be higher up the food chain than you. So keep that in mind, everybody. All right. Well, Earl, thank you again. Um, before we get going, I just want to ask you, is there a song that is personally special or significant to you that everybody should go out there and listen to? Well, I'm assuming since you've queued up Bath by Kiss that this should be the song I should answer. But No, uh, no, no. I want you to pick something unique. This is going to happen see. I'm gonna. Am I going to sing the whole song or, or am I just singing like a little bit of it? Uh, I don't want to give away. I did want to give it away, but... Um, oh, sorry. No, it's all right. I'm going to cut this out. No, don't, um, dude. If I were you, I'd leave it. Leave it's, it? It's organic. All right. Like, I know you asked me if I would be comfortable singing, but I didn't... Uh, I do very little research when I yeah. do someone else's podcast, so I wasn't sure. Am I singing the whole song? Well, I'll sing it with you, man, if it helps. Uh, we're, let's do some karaoke. Though, to Beth. Sure. But uh, before we do that, um, and thank you again for even agreeing to that. Absolutely. Yeah, but uh, I'm sorry what, I ruined it. No, nah, you're good. You didn't ruin it at all. I think the, uh, the real joy is going to come in a moment. Absolutely. But, uh, before we get to that, is there a song that comes to mind that's special or significant to you i mean i did sing this song to my mom once so this song works the song works or, or since i mean, am a big i mean is this a uh is this a thing where if i gave you any song it, it would come up in the queue or we could probably find it um honestly though because we're just big kiss fans because this is like the love most lovable kiss song i think by like all people I thought it would be a good way to end it. It is. I mean, there are two other Kiss songs that I, I'd be down with. Yeah. Uh, Lick It Up, of course. <laughs> and uh, All Hell's Breaking Loose, which uh, is off Lick It Up. It's really the first rock rap. You know, everyone gives Aerosmith credit for doing the co collaboration with Run DMC to bridge rock and rap. Paul Stanley's rap at the beginning 
of uh, all hell's breaking loose is uh, dope as the kids say I, I, I could probably recite it to you right now before you we do this you want to try want. to take a guess oh absolutely I don't do even it, need man. the karaoke <clears throat> street hustler comes up to me one day when I'm minding my own business now he looks me up he looks me down and says hey man what be this and what be that and why do you gotta look like that well I just kind of looked at him and I said that ain't cool man I had to breathe haven't you heard and then it goes into all hell's breaking loose hey hey have you heard the word <laughs> Thank you so much, no man. I wish I wish we rap. had an audience right now because that would definitely get an applause break. Uh, probably, probably. But I think so. So we could do Beth. We could, Beth is a good one. Beth's a good one. Okay. Well, uh, I mean, cat's out of the bag, but sorry. Want, no, you're good. We can do look it up, or you can just pick a random Kiss song. I, I probably know all, if I ruin the surprise of Beth. Uh, you, you know. No. We can I, do another. I'm, I'm cool with this, man. Random rat song. Um. That would be good too, but no. Let's just, right. let's just let's do this. Keep the volume down because my neighbors are yeah, no worries. Real anal, and yes, I do live in a gay building, <laughs> so it makes sense. No, you know, before you start, I was yeah. just saying this complex I have. This building's been around since 1974. I've it's the heart of West Hollywood. Eight people have died of AIDS in this building. In this building, so wow. I don't know if they died actually in the building, but they right. lived in the building. So uh, that's uh, that's got to be a pretty high rate. It's quite a legacy. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, yeah. If you if you see where Earl lives, he lives right in the center of like WeHo, uh, like Santa Monica and um, Santa Monica and like San Vicente. Yeah, and then like Sunset's right on the other side. Like you have the Viper Room. That's like the straight the, half. Like yeah, uh, I used to live. At, I don't want to give out the address because the guy still lives there. But there's a very famous. Uh, 70s, 80s hairdresser named Jose Iber. Yeah. He he was I, I don't know if, he he was you know hairdressers don't really get a lot of fame but this guy was famous like yeah. he did share his hair and all that and we lived in the same building and for five years he never said anything to me I just think oh, this guy's straight fuck this guy and uh, one day he looks at me after I'd done playing hockey and I wear a helmet when I'm playing hockey at the time so I had to, my hair looked horrible and he looked at me and goes ugh your hair looks like shit. <laughs> I'm like, let's just say it's an honor that those are the first words you've ever spoken to me. But I'll have you know, I'm moving to, you know, I gave him the address, and he just looks at me and goes, "Ugh, do you know what they do to boys like you on Larrabee?" And uh, yeah, I mean, I am in the heart. Uh, this is the cruising street. So when gay right. <laughs> when gay gentlemen go to the nightclub and they want to like get their peepees touched, they do it on my street. But it's weird. You go and then you go the other way, and it's like the most straight yeah. thing in all of Hollywood. I mean, the street it's, I'm on is surreal because on my street, it's like the gayest. Uh, on my block, I should say the TV's gone off again. Sorry, folks. Sorry. Uh, it's like I live on the gay block, but. Like Danny said, a block up, it's like the straight version. So it's like a real, it's a very eclectic neighborhood. Um, you know, you see hot girls who love walking around here because they know they won't get picked up on. So it's like a real, like. It's a very interesting place to say the least. It's, uh, if you're ever in West Hollywood, 
Check out Larrabee Street. Yeah, I mean, it's... Well, so, I mean, there's such a history... You don't have to cut that out ever. I, sorry. If you've ever seen my Instagram lives, I've given my address out at times. <laughs> uh, it's like when I gave out my cell phone number on the Comedy Central podcast, I was so pissed. And put, like I would get all these phone calls from angry fans going, you suck, you weren't on TV that much, fuck you. And uh, so... Uh, but it, it it's, it's a lot of history on this street. Like in the 80s, at Definitely. the end of my street... This will be the last like wacky tidbit I throw out. Yeah, uh, it's now a gay cowboy bar called Flaming Saddles. Mm-hmm. But in the '80s, it was Larrabee Sound Studio. So like Prince did parts oh, of Purple wow. Rain there. Ozzy Osbourne did um, the Ultimate Sin album. Wow. So it, it's like it's a crazy. Uh, th- like the three to four miles that are around all sides of us are just just gay. They're Super straight. There's like in between stuff. It, it's a very Although I want a house one day, uh, I love this area. I feel you, man. I get it because uh, everything around here is just uh, so damn interesting. All right. Well, uh, let's wrap it up then. Uh, thank you again, Earl. I know this is no like problem. the fifth time I've thanked you, but it's all good. Really means a lot to me. But leave and, a review uh, for Danny. But like, please. That's ten minutes ago. This was my whole point. Was like oh, you're right. doing this for free. <laughs> You drove here, you know, from a very far distance. Uh, you know, all we, any podcaster, even Rogan, probably wants people to rate, review, subscribe. Yeah, please. And uh, because it helps you in the algorithm of Apple Podcasts. So, like, if you get, and it takes thirty seconds. All you do is look up this podcast. You look up the name. You hit subscribe, and then you leave an actual review. Say, hey, it's a great podcast. Earl talked too long, or whatever. <laughs> uh, but it helps get Danny and mine. Do it for inappropriate Earl. It, it, you, you need reviews to crack the algorithm or otherwise no one will hear the podcast definitely and on top of that uh i can't grow unless i know what you think so please let me know yeah leave an honest review yeah. like there's people i think i have like 500 reviews which is a fair amount like rogan literally has like fifty thousand. but mm-hmm. like there's one guy who said it's probably one of my favorite reviews of my podcast he's like, i used to love this guy's podcast he had interviews with great guests like steven piercy now it's just a bunch of roast battle comics i've never heard of unsubscribe <laughs> so but i like the guy's honesty I'll, I'll assume it's a guy right yeah you can't fault him there and you know what maybe that influenced you to get uh, barry katz on oh yeah, yeah i mean maybe. you know but people don't understand like guests aren't going to want to do a podcast that they think nobody's listening right no matter who, like I had the bad guy from Cobra. He's coming on the podcast. His name is Brian E. Thompson. But, awesome. the, for, <laughs> but the, the first question he asked my friend when he, my friend asked me or asked him to do it, he's like, what are the numbers like? You know? And it's a fair question. You I know? don't blame yeah. him. Like, you know, but I, I myself, I don't care. I don't know if your podcast does, I don't even want to know. I don't care if it does well or not. I would have done it anyway. Well, I appreciate that, Earl. And, you know, that sounds like a great time uh, to get into our next final segment. Uh, you guys are in for a treat. This is not available anywhere else in the world. So. Probably for good reason. <laughs> Brace yourself. All right. Uh, on behalf of Earl Skakel and myself, Danny Frank, it's been a great time. Hope you've had some fun as well. It's from Phantom of the Park. We're going to lead you out with a little song. Beth, I hear you calling, but I can't come home right now. Me and the boys are playing, 
and, and we, we just can't find the sound just a few more hours and i'll be right home to you i think i hear them calling oh beth what can i do beth what can i do you say you feel so empty that our house just ain't our home i'm always somewhere else and you're always there alone just a few more hours and i'll be right home to you i think i hear them calling oh beth what can i do Beth, what can I do? All right, guys. Uh, my name is Danny Frank. This is Earl. He's from Inappropriate Earl. Check out the jellies. Uh, make sure to rate, subscribe, and review on both podcasts. And really, from the bottom of my heart, if you tr- if you stuck around this long, thank you. Seriously. All right. Uh, do we do the end? Might as well, right? Yeah. It's you know, like the, two more seconds. The interesting part was this song was supposed to be called Beck. Ah, that Gene would've... told Peter to switch it. That would have been a way different song. Because he thought people were talking about the guitar player. Uh, Beth, Beth, I know you're lonely. And I hope you'll be all right. Because me and the boys will be playing all night to do the high pitch thing he does at the end which sounds horrible uh, all right thank you earl this is danny franks walks of life thank you